Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. And this morning, as we go into John chapter 4, let me pray for us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning's passage in John chapter 4 is all about giving up trust in something that feels incredibly comfortable in order to discover Jesus. Giving up something that's very comfortable in order to discover Jesus. And the account of Jesus coming to the Samaritan woman, we discover that God wants to deliver a people from sin, that he wants to form them in worship, and that he wants to make them a vessel of grace to other people, that he wants to rescue a people, that he wants to form them in worship and make them a vessel of grace for others. Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman in the daytime. And if you remember last week's sermon, this is a contrast to Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. Jesus comes to this woman during the daytime. He's just left Jerusalem and the Passover feast. He's heading back north to Galilee where he's going to continue his kingdom mission And some have rightly pointed out that many a pious Jew would have avoided Samaria and taken a longer route across the Jordan and gone up and then back over to Galilee to avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus doesn't do that. He decides that he's going to go through it. This is actually part of his kingdom mission. The Samaritans weren't Jewish, but they also weren't Gentiles. They're kind of this third thing. They would have actually considered themselves Israelites. Um, But Jews outside of Samaria would have considered them unclean, just as any other Gentile. Uh, But they're a different thing. They spoke Hebrew. And and their alphabet actually looked closer to the pre-exilic form of the Hebrew alphabet before the southern kingdom went into exile and later on adopted what we now know of as Hebrew, which is this Aramaic block script. The Samaritans' Hebrew looked actually closer to the, the older type. And they were descended from those ten tribes. Uh, and so they made up the majority of the kingdom. They were taken away back in the 8th century. So about 700 years or so before the time of Jesus. The Assyrian king had come in from the north. And had taken them away and, and did forced deportations. Intermarrying them with other, other groups of people. And so when they came back they were looked on by the Jews who came back from Babylon, they were looked at as half-breeds. And so the Samaritans, it's interesting, they they had the Torah. They had the first five books of the Law of Moses. They worshipped the God of Israel. They would have considered themselves Israelites. Um, But their canon didn't include the prophets and the writings. Some of the other two-thirds of the Old, more than two-thirds of the Old Testament that we're familiar with. Early on, possibly as early as the 5th century, so think back to the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, they had probably set up a temple in Mount Gerizim to rival and match the temple in Jerusalem that was being built. 
that they could go to and make sacrifice so they wouldn't have to go to the southern kingdom. And the Samaritans, just like the south, was waiting for a Messiah. They were reading the Torah. They were looking for a prophet that was greater than Moses, a new lawgiver who would come and rescue them from oppression. Even if the Jews in the surrounding areas didn't consider them to be Jewish, sometimes it's easy for us to forget actually how Jewish the Samaritans were. And then, so when Jesus goes to this woman, it feels like a little bit of a prefiguring of what we're going to see later in the book of Acts, which we'll talk about in the future when we get to Ascension Day. Um, you know, in the, he calls his disciples to go to the Jews, and he doesn't just skip to the Gentiles, he includes the Samaritans. They're like this third thing. He says, go to the Jews, go to the Samaritans, and to the end of the earth, to the Gentiles. Jesus cares for the Samaritans, and they're part of his plan as well. Um, The good news that Jesus is bringing is good news uh, for the Samaritans. And in Jesus's day, it would have been really controversial, not just to talk to a Samaritan, but to corner a woman alone in conversation uh, who is a Samaritan. So he breaks through prejudices of sex and national identity to bring the good news of God's kingdom beyond the boundaries of God's chosen people where it feels really comfortable. And that's helpful to us. Where do we need to break through to bring the gospel? Where is it comfortable for us to talk about the gospel? And where is it less comfortable? The woman came to the well at noon. And when she comes to the well, she comes alone. She doesn't go with the other women in her town who would probably have come during morning or evening, a time where it wasn't the middle of the hottest part of the day. That would have been more customary. And so I sense in this story a woman who has a lot of shame in her story. She's had four husbands, and that was not common then. It's not that common now. We don't know if she was divorced or if they died, but either way, I'm sure that she had a reputation in the town. And so this Samaritan woman comes alone. She doesn't come in the morning or the evening with the other women. But notice that this is the woman that God is going to use to bring his gospel uh, of the kingdom to the Samaritan people. This is the vessel that he's going to choose. She's not an influencer. She's not a celebrity. There is really nothing about her life that we would want to emulate. Um, But she's loved by God. And... When the grace of Jesus finds her, she finds hope of life with God and she finds an end to her shame so that she can face other people again. And so she's the perfect messenger for God to choose to bring his message to the Samaritan people, a vessel who will understand grace, who, um, yeah, who is just a conduit of grace, who is loved by God. Jesus then asks her in verse 7 for a drink. And so she responds to him, understandably, if you can picture the scene. How is it that you, a Jew, ask from me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And that, this wasn't about water at this point anymore. Even though St. John does take pains to show us that Jesus was tired, that he was thirsty, that he was fully human, in all things it is to be human except without sin. But remember last week I said something, and it's true here too, that Jesus is looking at the question behind the question. How is it that you, a Jew, can give to me, a Samaritan woman, a drink of water? It's not really the question. There's a question behind that. 
And so one commentator, um, B.F. Westcott, says, Christ reading the woman's heart had confidently begged for that which might relieve a bodily want. If she could read his heart, she would have prayed for help in her spiritual perplexity. If she could have read his heart, she would have prayed for help in her spiritual perplexity. Jesus saw the need for new life before she was even ready to admit her need for it. And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, knew it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so then she seems to change the topic. <laughs> All right, let's, let's talk about something else, Jesus. Um, I don't have anything to draw water with. Oh, and the water's actually too deep. Oh, and um, by the way, do you think you're actually greater than our father Jacob? <laughs> So, you know, legend has it that Jacob, who's also called Israel, is the father of the 12 tribes and that he dug this well. And so it was this tangible reminder to the Samaritans every time they went to drink uh, and and go to get water that they were part of this godly heritage uh, of Israel, of Israelite heritage. And so she put up excuse after excuse before uh, finally getting to Jesus's question. And she, she poses a question. Well, yeah, who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are? And so Jesus says that everyone who's going to drink of this water, of this well, uh, will be thirsty again. But Jesus says that he can provide a spring of water, living water, which just means ever flowing like a river as opposed to a pond. He can provide a, a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. A well of stagnant water is going to be prone to things like contamination um, And it's always going to leave people wanting and coming back to that well for more and more. It's it's not good enough for what she needed. And so Jesus, like he did with Nicodemus, he gives her a problem to ponder that's way bigger than the question she's asking. He gives her a problem to ponder that's way bigger than the question she's actually asking. And so in her case, with the Samaritan woman, there is a parallel to the mess that is her life right now. Uh, with this question. And, and so I appreciate how many of the church fathers, when you read their commentaries on this passage, they compare this woman's story to the story of the church. Um, all of us are a messy people. We come this morning as messy people. We have been messy people and will continue to be messy people who are searching for our daily needs in murky pools that are going to leave us wanting or sick. And so Jesus comes and I wonder, and he, and he says, you know, give me your pools of water and I'm going to give you living water. He says to the church, give me those pools of water as you find them. Give me the things that you're relying on and I will pour into it living and abundant water and you won't thirst anymore. And so what are the pools that we turn to in our shame? It could be an addiction, whether that's a substance or pornography, workaholism, screen time on cell phones. What keeps your attention? Uh, It's hard to give up. When's a good time to reflect on those things? And addiction is a spectrum, of course. It might be a propensity to compare ourselves to other people, to either look down on other people, to make ourselves feel better about who we are, or it could be to sit in pity because we don't have what somebody else 
has, we can't measure up to another person. It might be spending way uh, too much time on leisure or exercise, some things that might be good, but in fact, we're disproportionately spending money or time on them um, to escape things that we need to deal with in life. It might be a physical place that we go to avoid having hard conversations or facing past failures. Whatever it is, we are looking to fill our spiritual need from a very uh, limited and sometimes even a toxic reserve in those spaces. And so Jesus speaks to us and he says, give me those places. Give me those pools of water and I will give you living water. Give me your stagnant, filthy ponds and I will give you living water. And so Jesus brings up the thing to this woman that caused her the most shame and it wasn't to induce more shame it was to give her hope he asked her to bring her husband to hear the message and so she replies that she doesn't have one and he knows that so prophetically he says yep you've spoken correctly in fact you've had five husbands and actually the current one is actually not your husband you know i don't know if that means that she was living with somebody else's husband or if that was they weren't married you know we we're not really told any details but it's not the way things were supposed to be and she knew it um and so she recognizes at that point wow this is a prophet uh and then she uses a religious issue to sidestep a deep heart issue what she says is almost like jesus you know rather than talking about my broken place I see you're a prophet. Can we talk about this hot button topic that uh, I hear people debate all the time? You know, which mountain should we worship on? Sort of a sidestep to the heart issue that Jesus is trying to get out again, not to induce shame. That's not what Jesus does, but to give her hope. This kind of thing uh, happens all the time with us. I was remembering uh, kind of a comical conversation I was having a long time ago with somebody where I had asked him a very personal question in the context of a conversation, and he answered me with a question. And his question to me was, hey, you know, does the Bible ever talk about aliens? And (laughs) does that mean that, like, if there are aliens, Jesus had to, like, reincarnate and die multiple times? Uh, to save each kind of alien life form? And if you're wondering, the answer is like no to every single clause in that question. <laughs> was, um, you know, so that was like the most extreme example I could think of. <laughs> but, you know, it also happens in identity politics where we're going to talk about Jesus and, and getting rid of what's comfortable to talk and discover Jesus. And somebody throws up a smoke screen about some sort of hot button political topic to avoid having a conversation about the heart. And I would posit that even in our own tradition, sometimes we can use ritual in the same way. And so I want to be clear on this. I love ritual and ceremony. Um, and, and I love the way that a high emphasis on ritual and ceremony adorns the good news of the gospel. We see the gospel every week when we're formed in worship. And, and I've heard it said that the medium is the message. And so it's really important that we keep those things up because matter matters. Right? We're not heads on the stick. We're liturgical creatures. And the ways that we adorn and proclaim the gospel in our corporate w- worship is, is the paramount way that we are being formed uh, as disciples of Jesus as we walk with him. 
But having said that, nobody's liturgy is a silver bullet for holiness. No one's liturgy is a silver bullet for holiness. I have known people in churches that have flawlessly executed such a beautiful liturgy from a technical standpoint. And then there's this disconnect from the rest of their life, whether they're a heretic or whether they're just not living into the holiness that they're proclaiming, whether it's ethics or theology. And so it's, it's an extreme form of compartmentalization to say, you know, at church I do religious things, I do holy things, and then everywhere else I'm doing things on my own, and I'm just waiting to get filled up again on Sunday, waiting to get filled up again on Sunday. You sort of hear that language across traditions, right? It needs to connect to the daily life. It can be really easy to get fixated on how Sunday worship looks and then to forget how to connect liturgy with building a community throughout the week. Our liturgy should connect to building a community throughout the week. And, and so instead, we keep rhythms within our Book of Common Prayer to help us meditate on God's Word every single day. Uh, and we connect with the Book of Common Prayer, it connects us to the life of the church during the week. That's partly why I started including the, the numbers up here when you get in the liturgy. If you have your Book of Common Prayer, you can bring those and you can start following along and getting used to it uh, with what's on the screen. So when we arrive at the end of John chapter 4, we find the woman telling everybody in the small town about her experience with Jesus. She has come to the one who can make her new, who knows her brokenness, who sees her and cares for her, who sees her pain and still gives her the goodness of the good news of the kingdom of God. And I find it interesting that when we read about the woman here, whatever shame she had in coming to Jesus initially at the well, it seems to be gone after her encounter with Jesus. Whatever shame she had was gone. And, and so she is now sharing this with other people Again, she's not an influencer by any stretch of the imagination. She's not a celebrity. Um, but her encounter with Jesus begins to unravel everything she knew. It's sort of it's a healthy deconstruction of the religious system that she had built and the narratives that she had told herself. And she's made new as a mouthpiece for the grace of God and the plan for the salvation of the Samaritans and the nations. She has this humble kind of wonder that was contagious to other people. And so the Samaritans, because of her testimony, they seek out Jesus and they ask him, can you stay with us for two days? And as Jesus spent time with them, it says, more and more Samaritans believe. We actually hear about Samaritans getting baptized in the book of Acts. And more and more Samaritans believe, not just because of the woman's testimony, but because they had heard Jesus now for themselves. And there's this real power I think we have in our testimonies as we tell God's story of grace. You probably felt it a few weeks ago if you came on Saturday when the bishop was here. Um, and hearing his story and, and his wife Catherine's story about their stories of redemption and how that shaped the way that they see the world and minister to other people, it was really powerful. I've appreciated the past when we've heard testimonies from like Carol and Don, and then I remember... Um, Christy and, and Rebecca Elmore gave testimonies the last couple of years during Advent. Those are really powerful times to share stories as a community. That's where formation groups are really powerful because they give us these opportunities to share testimony of what God's doing in our lives together. And we need to take time to pay attention to those things. 
You know, where are we hearing from Jesus for ourselves? Not just from others, but where are we hearing from Jesus for ourselves? Like the Samaritans. If we would keep this sense of wonder about hearing from Jesus, that wonder, I think, would be contagious to people. God is writing this story of salvation for the nations, those closest to us that feel like Samaritans, where they're close but not quite us, whatever that is. Um, And we can see it beginning here with the story of Jesus speaking eternal life to the Samaritans. And I'm not sure where you or I feel the most shame this morning, but where you feel most shame or most unworthy of being numbered among the saints, I want to encourage you um, this Lent to ask God where that place is. Where's the pool of water that you're drawing from? Where is it that you feel shame, where you feel like you have to go it alone? Could those places of shame or feeling completely undone or like, man, I am a mess, actually reveal those pools of water where Jesus wants to pour out his grace into you, where he wants to take your shame from you? Because you and I are stories of grace. Jesus has died. He's risen again to take those from us and pour living waters on us to redeem the wounds that we have that are unique to our stories that God's writing. And so suffering and shame are going to happen, but in Christ they're redeemed and new life is given to us. And if we would train ourselves to wonder at it, we can start to bring others into the story that God's telling. Nothing else is going to save us. Nothing else is going to satisfy us. Nothing else will deliver us the spiritual life and the fellowship with God that you and I are longing for in our spirit. And so this morning... Our Lenten encouragement is to give Jesus those places of comfort and trust. Give him those stagnant pools and and let him give you streams of living water. God wants to deliver a people to be formed in right worship so that he can bring others to himself. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose most blessed son revealed to the Samaritan woman that he is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Grant us to drink of the well that springs up to everlasting life, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.